the ring really stands out a lot. Today we are picking up Old Testament in chapter 18. So while you're reading here, I want to give you a reminder of where we stand. Daniel is the last ruling judge in First Kings, is largely about out of the nation being ruled by judges and into a monarch. So Daniel was exceptionally good judge, but his sons also judges, and he was appointed by him. And so they were corrupt, and they couldn't rise. They did not have to They could rise and kind of wake up. Um, and the Israelites recognized this, and they didn't have an opportunity to give after eight. Verse 4 tells us that it went down like this. All the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. Well, also at this time, you need to know that the Philistines, they still occupied territory in the promised land. And understandably, they were not thrilled about the Israelites being there. So there's been ongoing conflict throughout the book between these two nations. In war, as you know, the battles generally go to the more experienced army or the nation with the, the most soldiers or the, the one which is more technologically advanced um, or, or just soldiers that are more well-trained or maybe even the group that has the home field advantage. And uh, in this situation, the Philistines had every single one of those advantages. It's a dog-eat-dog world. And the Philistine army was the bigger, tougher, smarter, more battle-tested dog. So um, all of that actually shouldn't have mattered. Really, all that should have mattered is that Israel had God on their side. And they had experienced that. They had seen God work for them miraculously in the past. But they had stopped walking with God. In general, as a nation, they stopped listening to His Word being spoken. They stopped walking with Him. They stopped praying to Him. They stopped performing the law as was required. And so what happened, and what happens when we stop doing that, is that God became a superstition to them. It was this mystical, impersonal power. And so um, they assumed wrongly that, that God would just kind of work for them in whatever way they wanted or needed at the time. And uh, they took the ark out to the battlefield. The ark was it contained at that point by God's grace, the presence of God. And they hoped to weaponize God in that way and bring it out in the battlefield and the Israelites, they, they lost. The Philistines, they captured the ark and uh, it was a terrible, devastating blow for the Israelites. Eventually, some things happened. Ark ends up back in Israel. But in general, people are still not walking with God. But there are two guys that we see that are fighting men, other than Samuel, who walk with God. And they held this very humble and personal faith that was even tangible to them. And, uh, and, and those guys were Jonathan and David. And so last week we saw David act upon this faith as he killed the giant. And when he did, um, he was not acting like the nation where he was, you know, before he went to battle, he was not summoning a mystical impersonal power. Instead, he was drawing upon his own experience. You see, God was very, very real to him. And we know that when David was a shepherd, and he's out there all alone in the field, 
and all he has is just himself and some, you know, some primitive weapons, he was able to literally kill bears and lions to protect his sheep. He had no one to lean upon except God. And, you know, remember, again, there's no gunpowder at this point, all right? He's not shooting them um, with a rifle. He's not in a protected position from a tree stand or in like a, a warmly heated camouflage box, okay? Those things are not happening. He is literally doing this up close with his bare hands. And he would say, and he says this, this is a quote from the book, that the Lord delivered him from the paw of the bear and the paw of the lion. And so, as you learned last week, there's David as all of Israel watched. We're talking thousands and thousands and thousands of people as all of the Philistine army watched. Keep in mind, the Israelites were scared out of their ever-loving minds. David approaches Goliath, runs toward him, kills him with a single stone, and then cuts off his head right there in front of everybody. Chuck Norris has nothing on David. Okay. Um, now the other guy, Jonathan, he was the son of King Saul, and uh, he doesn't get nearly as much press, and that's rightfully so. Um, but David and Jonathan were two guys that were out of the same mold. Um, we don't know exactly how Jonathan came by his faith. We see that from David. He had some life experience he shared with us. For Jonathan, we don't know. His father, the king, had some moments where he was empowered by the Spirit, and he did act courageously and powerfully in the name of the Lord. He did that, and so it's possible that Jonathan saw that and the Lord used that. We don't know. It's also possible that there were some other set of circumstances or some other person in Jonathan's life that God used to help him, to groom him into a man who trusted the Lord. But we know, we know that he did. Okay? Um, we see him in the earlier chapter act very courageously, just like David. And so let me just remind you of that. Um, early in the book, the Philistine army has gathered against Israel, and uh, the numbers are given. There's 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and the Scripture says, foot soldiers like the sand of the seashore. All right, the Israelites were literally hiding in caves and water pots, okay, because they're so afraid of what's about to happen in this army that's assembled. Others were leaving. They were fleeing the country. They were not sticking around the battle. But while everyone else was running and hiding, Jonathan decides to pick his own fight and start the war. He goes around the assembled army of the Philistines. He approaches the garrison, and it's just him and his armor bearer. And he takes some time, and he kind of assesses the situation, and um, by the way, he didn't tell anybody he was going. He went all alone, other than accord, didn't tell anyone. And it says this, chapter 14, verse 6. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. Jonathan waits for an answer from God before he attacks. God gives him the green light, and as he's striking guys down left and right, his armor bearer is coming behind him, and he's finishing them off. Okay, these are the action scenes that, expired, that inspired Rambo, Kill Bill, John Wick. Okay, that's what's happening here. And so, I know that's a long introduction, but I need you all to see that Jonathan and David are two very tough, bold, skilled warriors. And they also have a very deep assurance and conviction regarding who God is and what he wants to do and what he can do for his people. And uh, not only that, everyone that's around them is 
fearful. They have this very faulty and faithless sense of who God is. So these two, these two men stand very much alone in this way, um, as far as we know. So now let's, let's get into our text for today. Um, let's read the first portion. It's chapter 18, verses 1 through 4. And remember, uh, last week, as chapter 17 ended, David is standing in front of the king with the head of Goliath in his hand. And he had just told Saul his family name. I'm, I'm, I'm the son of Jesse's Bethlehem. Bethlehem All right, verse 1. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. Okay, there's a lot happening here. Um, this is an amazing stream of events for David. Not long ago, in fact, maybe just days. Okay, We don't know exactly if this all happened on the same day or if it's just very quick succession. Um, he was just a teenager, right? And he was tending some sheep. That, that's, that's who he was. Um, at some point, Samuel shows up, who is the prophet in the land, the judge, and he secretly anoints David in front of his brothers, in front of his dad. He anoints him king, okay, out of nowhere. Then, coincidentally, it's orchestrated, but to, from a human perspective, coincidentally, um, he's, re- he's been requested to come to the king to play the lyre. He's also a musical guy, right? And so now he's in the presence of the king routinely, okay? So he's gone from shepherd, all right, to a secretly anointed king, elevated above his father and his brothers. Now he's in the throne room with King Saul. Now he's on the battlefield in front of the whole nation, all right, killing the, the Philistine uh, Goliath. And now the heir to the throne, all right, Jonathan is the heir to the throne. He is the next guy in line after Saul, to receive the kingship. Jonathan gives him all of his royal artifacts. He gives him his sword. He gives him his royal robe. Now, we don't know if Jonathan knows anything about this anointing. Probably he doesn't. But at least at this point, this is just foreshadowing that Jonathan sees that David is the kind of guy. He has demonstrated the, that character. He has demonstrated that courage, that bold faith, in God that is, or that at least should be, prerequisite for the king of Israel. In fact, as all the Philistines were gathered, Goliath is on the field. What is King Saul doing? The scripture says that King Saul was afraid and he was in his tent like everybody else. But David acted more like king in that moment than King Saul. And he is the one who shows up. Okay? So what we see is that God is incrementally and dramatically preparing David to take the kingship. And it's not going to happen all at once. And just a little spoiler alert here, um, it's going to take a lot of time. Years go by before he's actually acting as king. And David is going to suffer a lot between now and then. And then we're going to see some of that today. Okay. So twice in these opening verses chapter 18, of chapter 18, we're told that Jonathan loved David as his own soul. So think about this. David had just watched, or uh, Jonathan had just watched David do the same kind of thing that Jonathan had done, only better, right? Um, We all understand that friendship between two people um, is born when two people share 
something in common. All right? And maybe they share an occupation. It could be a season of life. It could be a recreational activity. But for these guys, it was single-handedly killing bad guys. Okay? Um, so Jonathan saw David as an even better version of himself. And he saw that he was worthy. He was the kind of person that could be royal. All right, so verse 5. David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul sent him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistines, the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry, and this saying displeased him. He said, They have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And so Saul eyed David from that day on. Okay, so um, if you've watched much TV at all, you've learned that being king has certain occupational hazards. Okay? Namely, people want to kill you because they want your position. All right? um, so kings, therefore, become paranoid. And so even worse for Saul, remember that Saul has already been told by, by Samuel, look, you're going to lose the kingship. It's over for you. It's going to be torn from you and given to a neighbor. And so what happens is, is Saul begins to connect the dots. All right? He's seeing this happen before his eyes, and now he takes the position that he's going to do whatever he can to, to stop it. So he's going to try and kill him. And he's going to go about that in a couple different ways. This is verse 10. The next day a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre as he did day by day. Saul had his spear in his hand, and Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. Saul was afraid of him because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. And he went out, excuse me, David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe with him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. So um, Saul was able to very clearly recognize the Spirit's power in someone's life, all right? Because he had it on several occasions, already mentioned that. So now he's even more afraid because not only um, is David popular with his own family, with his servants, and with the entire nation, now he sees that the blessing of God is upon David, and so his solution is to get David as far away from him as possible, right? He's increasingly becoming more and more paranoid, wants to get David out of there. He's tried to kill him himself, has become unsuccessful twice, and now he thinks, okay, I'm just going to get him out, he's going to fight more battles, and hopefully he'll get knocked off by the Philistines. So here's Here's uh, Saul's plan. This is verse 7. Then Saul said to David, Here is my elder daughter, Merib. I will give her to you for a wife. Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, Let not my hand be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. And David said to Saul, Who am I and who are my relatives, my father's clan in Israel, that I should be son-in-law to the king? But at the time when Merib, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, he was given to Adriel the Maholophite for a wife. All right, David understands how royal unions are supposed to work. If you're nobody, you don't marry into a royal family. And so it might be helpful to some extent to think about the, the Netflix, the crowd here. Okay, you 
marry for strategic purposes. And you pick spouses only from those people who are in high, lofty, influential, wealthy circles. And David's not an idiot. He knows he doesn't fit in with that crowd. Further, it, it was customary for, um, in this culture, whenever you married someone, for the, the family of the groom to pay the father of the bride a bridal, uh, like a fee, like a bride price. Um, and obviously, if you're marrying the, the, the daughter of the king, that bride price is going to be, you know, it's going to be a lot. So that's not David. He doesn't have that. He can't do that. So what's happening here is David is actually declining. He's saying, no, I'm not the person to do this. And um, so Saul accepts that answer, um, but he's not completely deterred. Here's verse 20. Now Saul's daughter, Michael, loved David, and they told Saul, and the thing pleased him. Saul thought, let me give her to him that she may be a snare for him and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore Saul said to him a second time, You shall now be my son-in-law. And Saul commanded his servants, Speak to David in private, and say, Behold, the king has delight in you, and all of his servants love you. Now then become the king's son-in-law. And Saul's servants spoke those words in the ears of David. And David said, Does it appear to you a little thing to become the king's son-in-law, since I am a poor man and have no reputation? And the servants of Saul told him, Thus and so did David speak. Then Saul said, Thus you shall say to David, The king desires no bride price except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines, that he may be avenged of the king's enemies. Now Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. So Saul tries the marriage plan again, except this time with, with Michael. And uh, you can see Proverbs 29.5 in action here. Proverbs 29.5 says this, A man who flatters his neighbor sets a trap. For their feet. And so just notice the way it's phrased. Um, Saul's servant spoke those words in the ears of David. And he said, The king has delight in you, and all his servants love you. In other words, Saul is telling him, You're an awesome guy. You are actually worthy of this. You are the kind of person that should marry my daughter. And so Saul's you know, attempting to stroke his ego in order to get him to agree. And David again responds with a humble no. But then Saul makes David a deal he thinks that David won't be able to resist, and he's right. He says, I'll tell you what, no bride price. Instead, kill 100 Philistines, and she's yours. So notice again the way this is phrased. Saul wants to give Michael to David, um, and it says that, that she may be a snare to him. So this language is exactly the same that you might see, or if, if you were to look at Exodus 23, verses 32 and 33, listen to this. You shall make no covenant with them, and their gods. You shall not dwell in your, they shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. So it's possible this is what Samuel meant. It's possible that Michael um, like worships other gods, that she has idols. And it's possible that this would be secret. It's possible that, that no one would know about this, because in Israel... If you were caught worshiping idols, the death penalty would be enacted. And so if you're the king's daughter, you would have all the protection around you, and you possibly could, could be an idol worshiper, worshiper by the foreign gods, and you could keep that a secret. And so it's possible David doesn't know this. Um, commentators kind of go back and forth on this. We're not real sure, but it seems that way. And at the very least, David's in danger Physically, right? If he's not in danger spiritually by, by being uh, married to this woman, she, he's certainly endangered physically because the, the price here is go out, attack, and kill 
a bunch of Philistines. But for David, a pile of uh, Philistines is way easier to produce than a, than a pile of um, cash. So he accepts, and watch what he does. This is verse 26. When his servants told David these words, it pleased David well to be the king's son-in-law. Before the time had expired, David arose and went along with his men and killed not 100, but 200 of the Philistines. And David brought their foreskins, which were given in full number to the king, that he might become the king's son-in-law. And Saul gave him his daughter Michael for a wife. But when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy continually. Then the commanders of the Philistines came out to battle, and as often as they did, David had more success than all the servants of Saul, so that his name was highly esteemed. You can't help but feel Saul's frustration here. Every time he tries to cancel David, his plan backfires. And uh, this overachieving Philistine hunter, he just secures more and more and more favor in the eyes of everyone who's watching. Okay, so um, a a couple of big picture uh, principles that we need to take away from this passage. It's a little bit trickier sometimes from a narrative like this. but we can do it, and we're going to. First, at the end of the day, I want you to notice that God was still king. Yes, the Israelites asked for a king, and they got what they wanted, but at the end of the day, God was the one who was still orchestrating things. He was the one who was still calling the shots, and he was the one who would choose, ultimately, who would be king, the human king, his representative on earth. Remember Hannah's prayer at the beginning of this book. Jeremy made reference to this, um, and it might have been week one. It says this, The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. Do you hear David in this? For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. You just hear David, you hear Saul, you hear the Philistines in this prophetic, um, in this prophetic word. So this was divine foreshadowing. This is Hannah, whenever she receives the blessing of becoming pregnant, um, this is Hannah just basically laying out, here's what God's going to do. And now we're getting to see it play out. This was, um, obviously, this was spoken decades before there was even a, a king, before anyone had even asked for a king in Israel. And these words are pointing toward God's anointed one. So, here's the thing. God is crafting all of history for his purpose. That's the thing that we need to take away. Okay, here's the second principle. And uh, to repeat what Jeremy pointed out last week, you and I are not some metaphorical... Um, David does not metaphorically represent us. Okay? We are not David. Jesus is David. All, right? all of Scripture is to point us to Jesus, and David is supposed to point us to Jesus. When we see David holding the, hand, or the head of the Philistine, you think about this, like in one day he had the greatest sword in all of Philistine, okay? Philistine. 
He also had put on the king's armor that day and put it down. Okay. Then he was given, again, he was given all of the artifacts by the future king of Israel all in one day. All right. This is pointing to a king. David points us to Jesus. And so uh, we know from the book of Matthew that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. We just got off of Christmas, right? So this is, um, this is, this is easy, right? Um, Jesus' earthly father, Joseph, was a descendant of David. We also know that from Matthew. Uh, Jeremiah thirty-three fifteen. this is a prophetic book of the Old Testament. It tells us this about the time of Jesus, that in those days, at that time, I will make a righteous branch sprout from David's line. He will do what is just and right in the land. Another prophet, Isaiah 9, 6, 7, says this, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on forever and ever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. And so commentators, biblical scholars, will say that David is a type, all right? And he points to Jesus. So, um, again, that's not you and me. If there is anything in us that is even remotely kind or good or courageous, anything like David, it's not because of us. It's because the Spirit of God is indwelling and causing us um, to be like Him. Colossians says this, that we were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, but have now been reconciled in His body of flesh by His death in order to present us holy and blemished and blameless in His presence. So here's what that means. We don't bring anything to the table before we are in Christ. All that we bring to the table is evil thoughts, actions, wickedness. And so I, I know you say, like, look, there's, there's plenty of people who manage to, to be kind and moral. Yes, that is true. But if you think about this, kindness and morality and all of these things that would maybe um, esteem us before God, they actually don't. Okay, before Christ, what happens is all of these things that you're trying to do to be a good person, all that you're trying to do is build up your own sense of self-righteousness. All that I was trying to do before I was a believer, if I ever did anything right or good, it's because I wanted to build up my own sense of self-righteousness. And it's because at the end of the day, even when we're young, I think we understand this, that we can get people's approval and that we can hopefully get God's approval, all right? Hey, karma does not exist in the Bible, all right? There is no redeeming ourselves in the Bible with good deeds. It doesn't work that way. Sin has to be covered, and our good deeds do not cover it. And so if you are not a believer, you are so prone. In fact, I would say that you're doomed to live in fear of what's coming when you die. And so your morality is largely based on that oughtness, that shouldness, that I should be a certain way so that when I die, I have something to give God that He might accept me. But that is not the Bible. All right? The Bible does not teach that. That is not the Christian faith. The Christian faith says that Jesus lived the perfect life, that we could not on our own, and He died for the sin that we could not repay. That is the Gospel. That is the Christian Bible. We cannot cover up the wrong that we've done 
Jesus does that for us. For us. So, uh, one, one more final point of application. Uh, I think there's something else to be learned from the other players in this story. Um, Israel had an opportunity to live and thrive under God as king, but they rejected that. And here's why. Um, yes, they wanted to be like the other nations, all right? But ultimately, they had in their history, they had the story of who God was and what he had done for them. And so, you know, they tried to use that when they pulled out the ark. They tried to rely upon that. But here's what they wanted, really. They wanted self-determination. They suffered from the exact same thing that we do. Just like them, we want to be the ones who make the final call, who have the final say, who have the controlling interest in our lives. That's what they wanted. And it just so happened that they had, you know, other nations around them that had kings, and they wanted to be like them. All right? Let us choose. That's what they're saying. Let me choose who it is that I'm going to be and who's going to sit on the throne of my life. Um, so here's, here's the question. Are you more like Saul? Am I more like Saul? Or are you and I more like Jonathan? Very, very contrasted individuals, obviously. Saul wanted to kill the authority, Right? He saw that David was rising, all right? And his response was not to in any way embrace it, not to embrace what Samuel had said God was going to do. Instead, he wanted to rail against it. On the other hand, Jonathan, think about what he did. He bent, practically bent the knee and said, I see who you are. You are a rightful authority here, and I grant this to you, okay? And so we have to ask ourselves that very same question, um, everything in our culture, everything inside you and everything inside me whispers, and sometimes it even shouts, that you and I should be the acting king or queen in our lives. That ultimate authority should reside in us. And it does not take you long. If you just start thinking through advertising schemes, marketing schemes, um, that's what everybody's telling you. That you deserve, you are entitled to, you do you, right? We have the authority even if, you know, even if we don't say this, um, because we know better than in a, you know, in, in a Christian context that we're not going to say this, this is how we act. That we have the ability and the authority to, to choose how we spend our money. Um, that we have the ability and authority to choose how we spend our time, who we spend our time with, how we craft our identities, how we express ourselves. All of those things, we just decide, hey, well, I, I do what I want. I'm an adult. Right? The problem is, is, if there's anything we've learned about authoritarians, is that humans make really bad ones. All right? Humans make really, really bad, all powerful beings. All right? They do not do it well. And that does not just include dictators. All right? It also includes individuals over themselves. And here's why because we don't actually choose the things that actually lead to the most joy. If we're left to ourselves, we choose things for ourselves that are not actually for our most good. We're terrible at deciding what is good for us. Um, we, you know, we might find some, some pleasurable moments here and there, and we do. We all manage that. And you know, we happen to live in a culture and in a country where we're finding good, easy, pleasurable days and activities is actually pretty easy, all right? We can manage that. Or right? other parts of the world, they don't enjoy that, but we can enjoy that. We can find those moments. But here's the problem. 
those moments eventually don't satisfy, and they're just that. They're momentary. And a lot of those moments aren't graces from the Lord. Instead, it's just sin, and they will absolutely destroy us. Some of you right now, by seeking the things that you're seeking, okay, you are destroying your life. And it's coming down on you one incremental step at a time. And some of you have already been there and done that and seen that, and now the Lord has lifted you back up and showed you how to walk in righteousness and holiness and goodness, and you've seen that lived out in your life, and you're already on the other side of that. <clears throat> Look, submitting to authority, it sounds terrible. Like just saying that, there's nothing in ourselves, and certainly nothing in our American Western selves, that wants to submit to authority. But think of it like this. What if you were actually submitting to a good authority? What would it be like to submit to an authority in your life that actually had power and desire for us to live well, to find joy, contentment, satisfaction, fulfillment? If we could submit to that authority, then... That's something that we could actually do. And so whether you're a Christian this morning or whether you're not, this, there's a message for us here. Um, if you're not the Christian this morning and you're, you're hearing my voice, here's what it means. It's, it's not that God needs to prove something else to you. Okay? God doesn't need to prove anything else to you that He exists. Instead, what needs to happen is you need to just believe the thing that I've told you this morning, that He's already proven to you that He's good and He loves you. And He did that in the death of His Son. That Jesus came, that He died, He lived a perfect life, and all of that on your behalf. That's what we need to embrace and believe this morning if we're not a believer. If you are a Christian this morning, I think it looks a little bit differently. Um, yes, we remind ourselves of that. Um, but but here's, here's the thing. Psalm 34, 8 says this, Taste and see that the Lord is good. Oh, the joys of those who take refuge in Him. Christian, listen very, very carefully. Your joy will not be found in just trying to get everything the world says it can promise you. If we're honest, we still do that. We are still looking for, for these things. We're still trying to find a perfect working situation, perfect job. We are still trying to raise perfect kids. We are still trying to find to create a perfect marriage. We are still planning a perfect retirement. We are still seeking out perfect friendship, a perfect home, a perfect financial position. You pick it. What is it for you? What basket are all of your eggs in that you're going after? And I tell you, the longer that I do this, the longer that I am someone who... Um, who tries to just pastor and to be available and to watch people and learn um, and be available to people, what I learn is that nobody gets out of this unscathed. There's not a single person who gets all the way through life uninjured, not disappointed, all right? Whether that's illness, whether that's some major catastrophic failure in relationships, man, everybody gets it, all right? This world is like broken glass, and as we try and manipulate it and pick it up, we are going to get cut because it's broken. There's no one who gets away unscathed. 
And so the question is, is are, are we going to continue to pursue all of these things with all of our hearts? And some of them, most of them aren't bad. Like it's, it is good to have a good marriage, and we want to pursue that. It is a good and great thing to have a good business, and we want to pursue that. All right? It is a good and great thing to have a career and a job, and we want to pursue that. But the problem is, is when we elevate those things and we say, this is the thing that I'm about. This is the thing that, makes, that demands all of my time and all of my thought and all of my energy. When we make that thing the God of our lives, what we're saying is that I'm going to be the one to choose what makes me happy. And I'm not going to listen to what the Lord says about what's going to make us happy. Okay? And so um, that's, that's my prayer for us this morning. Um, is, is that we will begin to evaluate some things. And, and two things, okay? The first is, is there any sin right now in our life that we are pursuing and we are doing that unrepentantly? Okay, listen, you're going to struggle, all right? I struggle, you struggle, but there's a difference between struggling and repenting and, and try, you know, moving, trying to move away from sin and just all out being in it, all right? So if that's you this morning, if there's something this morning that just owns you, then Jesus needs to take the throne right now. He needs to have that position of authority in your life. And then here's the second thing that we're going to pray for here in a moment. Is there something that you're pursuing that's a good thing that you've not even offered that up to God and asked Him, should I be doing this? Like, is there something that you're planning for, something that you're chasing after, something that you're trying to accomplish that actually doesn't exist. None of those perfect things exist, okay? They don't. And so if we're trying to pursue those, it could be that we, just, we haven't submitted these plans to the Lord. Because listen, here's what's going to make you happy and what's going to make me happy. All right, two things, all right? Knowing God and obeying Him. That actually exists. We can know Him personally and we can obey His commands, and in that we will find all the satisfaction and fulfillment that our heart could ever want. But we will not do that unless we first evaluate and assess, Lord, do you want this for me? Is this something that you want? And that could be a very, very good thing. Okay? So um, here just a moment, after I get done praying, the band's going to come back up. And uh, my prayer uh, this morning before I got up here was just that the Lord would be speaking. And so I, I just want to reiterate that we are dependent upon the Spirit this morning uh, to, to have already spoken to you and then to move right now because this looks different for every person here. There's not a single thing that I could say that would resonate with everyone except just ask the Lord, will you please help us to find the most joy possible in submitting to you? Okay. So that's going, to be, that's going to be our prayer. And then the band's going to play. We're going to take a few moments just to, to sit while the music plays. Um, and we're just praying for the Lord to speak. Okay? So let's do that. Lord, we thank you for the example in Jonathan that you set. That we have this clear call to submit to authority where authority is good. And to, to submit to you because you love us and have demonstrated that. Lord, will you help us to do that today? And then will that overflow into every single area of, a, of life? Will you expose for us um, in your grace and in your mercy where it is that we're off? And will you help us to, to seek joy and contentment and fulfillment in you? Lord, if there is anything that we are 
uh, struggling with sin-wise, if there are patterns of sin that we can't escape, Lord, would you take the throne? Would you release us and help us instead to find our joy and contentment in you? Would you create in us new hearts that love and desire holiness and goodness um, above our own personal fleeting satisfaction, Lord? We pray all of this in your name and most certainly for your glory. Amen.